Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. That's what you want to be telling your family members. It's going to be easier to get an electric vehicle. It's going to be easier to get solar and wind, a heat pump. These are better technologies, better machines. They're cleaner, they're healthier, and there's going to be so many jobs associated with this. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and we are back this week with my beloved co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. How are you doing, guys? I didn't get to talk to you for a couple of weeks. I was away in Glasgow at COP. Brandon, how are you doing? I missed you, Julia. I haven't even gotten a readout of the COP. Oh, I know. It was it was amazing. Uh, it was actually just the nicest thing to get to connect with people you work with in person and be reminded of just how much everyone's working on this and so many disciplines from like gender and climate, health and climate, things that I don't really think about on a daily basis that people from all over the world came together to work on. And I was really you know, inspired by that. Shane, how are you? Julia said beloved co-host. I'm not buying it. I saw I saw the smile there, but maybe <laughs> you like, are you know. a beloved co-host. I I feel very grateful. Shane and I were in DC at the Rewiring America event and kind of felt like minor celebrities. People were bringing up the podcast. It was cool. It was awesome. Oh my gosh. I wanted to go to that event. Tell me a quick uh, rundown of it so our listeners can know. Because this is a kind of a it's a really cool initiative you guys are working on with Rewiring America. Similar to what you said about COP, first of all, it was just amazing to see so many people that I've spoken to, you know either I know their voice or I've seen them on Zoom or some sort of video platform over the last couple of years. A lot of people, you know, you know, from pre-COVID, but this was the first time I was together with tens of people that I really didn't know, but have worked with almost daily over the last two years. So that was really cool. I don't want to hog the mic on this because I know Brandon had a, a ton of fun at the event too, but uh, Senator Heinrich and Senator Smith are the co-chairs uh, on the Senate side. Uh, Representatives Castor and Tonko are the co-chairs on the House side. The event was you know, well attended with a wide range of businesses and just really cool to see a lot of people excited about electrification. When Brandon and I started working on electrification two and a half years ago before we worked together, you couldn't get like a meeting. People just didn't, they didn't understand it. They didn't think about it. They didn't talk about it. So it was cool, but I'll let Brandon wrap a little because I know he had a blast as well. Yeah, I mean, I just had several people, several of our listeners come up and talk about the podcast and it was just exciting to meet some of you in person. Yeah, that's so awesome. So just quickly to tie this up in a bow, what was the initiative about? What was this event about? So Rewiring America is about electrifying what, they, you know, what they've calculated to be 1 billion machines. So some of the early efforts, which have been included in the Build Back America Act, which we'll talk about a little bit later, are direct-to-consumer appliance rebates to help people electrify their households. But that's not the entire platform. The entire platform, I think, was well articulated in a Senate resolution Senator Heinrich introduced early this year. He also wrote a New York Times op-ed sort of explaining what it was about. But it's really, you know, 42% of emissions in the United States are based on decisions you make in your household. Now, I'm including the vehicle in that because, you know, most people know the transportation sector emissions are quite high. But 
if you were to electrify, you know, your appliances, your water heater, your, your, I would say your AC, but it would be a heat pump, um, drive an electric vehicle. If those decisions you made personally, you know, would cause 42% reduction in overall emissions. And then of course they want to electrify everything. And so the effort is really to think about how do you electrify all end uses? All the focus and politics over the last decade has been about how you generate electricity. But if you think about end use, you're already gaining about two thirds of efficiency right away when you electrify, and then you get compounding returns, right? Because as the grid gets cleaner, that efficient resource is cleaner than it was, you know, a year ago when the mix of electricity, you know, might've been more carbon intense. So um, it's really exciting effort, really interesting people behind it, but I've really enjoyed working on it. And the event in DC launched Congressional Electrification Caucus. So now we have members of Congress with a specific caucus on this, never existed before. There's a CEO coalition, a bunch of clean energy companies. You know, these CEOs are getting behind it to advocate. And then like a mayor's pledge where local mayors could take on an electrification pledge and rolled out, you know, a list of those mayors. I love that. I also saw that Saul Griffith, one of the founders of Rewiring America, has a new book out. So maybe we can find an opportunity to have him back on the show and talk about all this good stuff. For sure. He was there. Yeah, he's he's so great. And we had a great interview with him previously on the show, but it's always worth revisiting. He's such a, a luminary. And for anyone who's interested in COP26, I'd uh, recommend you go back and check out our last episode. I had some updates with the top announcements that were made, but also two interviews that look specifically at the climate finance piece and how the money's actually going to be mobilized, both from the private and public sector, into the climate solutions that we all want to see happen. So recommend go back and check out that. But the reason that we are gathered here today is to set our listeners up with some ammo for their discussions coming up over the holiday season. As we approach that most wonderful time of the year, first Thanksgiving, then possibly Hanukkah and Christmas, followed by New Year's celebrations, you'll probably have a chance to visit with friends and family. You know, hopefully it's a great gathering after a prolonged hiatus during the pandemic. But after all the hugs and merriment and round three of potatoes comes around, we know you're going to get asked about the climate stuff you work on. You're going to get asked what's happening with that. What's up with those bills passing in Congress? So we thought, why not tackle it this way and come up with the 10 stats you have to know to survive holiday season as a climate and clean energy expert or just aficionado or really anyone who cares about this stuff, which is probably everyone in this audience. So with that in mind, Brandon and Shane, first I got to ask, what are your holiday plans? Are you going to be in these settings where you're going to be grilled by your loved ones on what it is you do? Well, I am going uh, this week for Thanksgiving to Texas. Uh, That's where my wife, Sally, her family lives. So red state. But I've been trying to get a booster shot uh, lately, and no appointments are available in L.A., so I bet you there's appointments available down in Texas. So one good thing about going down there is I might be able to get my booster. There you go. <laughs> one good thing about going down there. Texas is a wonderful state. It is a great state. And I think we're going to get to Texas in this uh, 10 stats lineup that we're going to run through here. So awesome. Well, first off, I think we have to start with the infrastructure bill. We didn't have a chance to cover that amid COP, but that bill did pass and get signed into law over the past couple of weeks. And Shane, I'd love for you to kick this off with the top line numbers that people 
people should know that we're invested into clean energy solutions that really will help move the ball forward for our sector. Sure, Julia. So first of all, I'm going to pat myself on the back because last time we talked about this, I said, I guarantee you it's not going to pass this week. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi says. I don't care what CNN says. It's not happening. Of course, it didn't happen. Uh, it happened a, a week or so later. So yay me. Um, but moving on. Um, <laughs> well done. Thank you. Someone, Beloved co-host. No one else was going to say it. I had to Policy say projector. <laughs> so the bill is you know, huge. And obviously, it has a lot of items that are not climate related. But all in all, it has $550 billion in new federal spending. So, you know, above and, and beyond the baseline, $312.8 billion of that is basically what you think of as traditional infrastructure. But that also includes $7.5 billion of EV charging infrastructure, which is entirely new to the Department of Transportation and obviously really exciting. There's also $73 billion of power sector infrastructure, and probably of most interest to our listeners is there's an entirely new Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations within the Department of Energy. That gets $21 billion to fund innovative demonstration projects, and that ranges from hydrogen to direct air capture to advanced nuclear uh, and a host of other things that, that I'm probably not thinking of right now. It also has billions more for clean energy and other innovation projects run by DOE, $65 billion to harden and support the electric grid, including you know, transmission and technology enhancement, as well as providing state grants to facilitate states' ability to form regional energy markets. And for those of you who don't follow this at all, forming regional energy markets rather than staying in vertically integrated state markets is actually critically important to getting more renewables on the grid because it drives down the cost of renewables and allows states that don't have you know, vast renewable resources to take advantage of those that do. And then there's another $8 billion for four regional clean hydrogen hubs. And that's in addition to, you know, what I mentioned being hydrogen funding in the, uh, in the Office of Clean Energy Demonstration. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot of non-related energy policy in there too. But, you know, we're going to talk about Build Back Better in a second, and it's going to be exciting to do that. But I do think people skipped over this really quick as sort of not that relevant to climate. And I would argue otherwise. I think there's some really interesting stuff in there. And some of these demonstration projects could make a huge difference moving forward in so far as our ability to decarbonize those harder to reach sectors of the economy like transportation and heavy industry. Very good rundown. There's your 10 stats right there on the infrastructure bill alone. That was super great. So just to be clear, the top line number is $550 billion, you said? Well, the top line number is $1.2 trillion, but as people have probably learned because they've been paying attention more this year than, than I think most people have to politics ever, the baseline is just the expected level of spending. So it's $550 billion of new spending. In other words, it's $550 billion more than the government was projected to spend if this bill hadn't passed, and then other programs just sort of continue on at their baseline levels for a total of $1.2 trillion. And in case someone asks you over dinner, is this paid for? Or is this going to add to the deficit? Um, it is not paid for to the extent that that $582 billion or whatever number I just said. <laughs> Sorry, I put my note away. But um, that is not paid for. That is new additional spending. Got it. Shane, if somebody asks you at dinner, why are people making death threats against Republicans who voted for infrastructure? What are they supposed to say? Well, if someone's asking me at dinner, I'm at the wrong dinner. But I think what they would say <laughs> is those people are, are, you know, not the type of people that um, that you want to spend a lot of time around and hopefully not the type of people that will, I don't know, behave that way in the near future. I do think it's important to note that Congress got something done. They got it done with bipartisan support. Biden got criticized for even trying to take that approach. But hey, we made some policy. And I think that's a win that, uh, to your point, Shane, we shouldn't just quickly pass over, but take a moment to celebrate. So I'm going to show my partisan roots for the first time in a while here. But I think, you know, Democrats probably made a big mistake in focusing so much on the Build Back Better Act that they didn't really celebrate the win that they got out of this bipartisan bill. This is the type of bill a president 
president should run for reelection on. This is the type of bill that a con, you know, Congress members should be proud of and sell back in their districts. But I think the sight line was always so far ahead to reconciliation that it almost led to some counter messaging like this isn't enough. This isn't that big. It's not doing a lot for climate. I think it is big. I think it's doing some really cool stuff for climate. I think the EV charging money is going to make a real difference in a positive way. So that's something that I find interesting, and I'll be interested to see how that sort of plays out moving forward. It's so good that even some of the Republicans that didn't vote for it are taking credit for it. <laughs> yeah, that I've, I've heard that reported. And what's cool is that it's going to unlock, hopefully, private sector activity. My understanding is the bill itself, when people model it out, to your point, Shane, there is something to be said that the bill alone maybe won't produce the uh, reduction in carbon emissions that people wanted or as great of reductions on its own. However, by doing demonstration projects, by proving new technologies, you can unlock whole new segments of the economy we haven't tapped yet. So I think this is going to be delivering in exponential returns over time that you can't model if you just look at the bill alone today. So that's infrastructure. Just for scale purposes, you know, the DOE under the Recovery Act got $30 billion, which was a historic investment. And, you know, just this office of clean energy demonstrations that Shane mentioned, $21.5 billion just for that office, you know, so that just gives you sort of a reference point. They can do a lot with that. It's going to move the needle. Yeah, it's huge. Well, we mentioned this $550 billion number in new spending from the infrastructure bill. That's also a key number in the Build Back Better Act because there's around $550 billion in that bill for climate and clean energy programs, which could have a transformational effect as well on not only just addressing the climate issue, but job growth, community benefits, health improvements, and the list goes on. As we record this, the House of Representatives recently passed the Build Back Better Act. It was on Friday, November 19th. Now it goes to the Senate. So the stat to take away from this is $550 billion for climate and clean energy, which could have a transformational effect on the economy. But of course, it still has to pass. So Shade, before we move on, can you give us the rundown of what has to happen next? Yeah, so the process is much further along than it was last time we talked about this. We talked about the House doing a manager's amendment, going through the Rules Committee, and then going to the floor and passing, and then what had to happen in the Senate. So just to sort of take a pause there, the House did do its manager's amendment. It did you know, push that out of Rules Committee onto the floor. It passed on the House floor with every Democratic vote except one, who was Jared Golden from Maine. Uh, no Republican votes. Democrats in disarray. Well, that one was. <laughs> And uh, and no Republicans voted for the bill. I think, you know, what we always knew was it was going to get a little bit more interesting in the Senate and see, you know, where Joe Manchin's at, where Kirsten Sinema's at. But at the end of the day, the process is sort of winding up. What they needed was about two weeks to go through what's being called the birdbath. But that's really to look at every provision of the bill and see if it violates the bird rule and then wouldn't be permissible under Senate procedure. That process began a week ago. Uh, I'm told that not a lot of people are doing a whole lot this week. Senate staff deserves a break. They've been working very hard. And I think some of them will probably spend some time with their families. But that process alone, just that sort of measuring the bill against the standards of the bird rule takes about two weeks. So if you assume you're one week into that because they started that process last week, I'm sure there's a little bit of work getting done this week. You could see that the bill could be ready for passage a week from now. So that first week of December, from a procedural standpoint, the bill could be ready for passage. Now, some stuff might have to come out. I don't know how the parliamentarian is going to rule on each individual provision, but as a matter of process, if they had the votes and they were ready to do it, they could put it on the floor in a week. There are process issues, though, that that are going to delay that a little bit. One of them is the National Defense Authorization Act. That needs to get dealt with. One of them is that government funding expires on December 3rd. According to Secretary Yellen, the debt limit will be reached. I think it's on the 10th, she said. So there are a lot of things that need to be done. But procedurally for this bill, it'll be ready for consideration in a week. Then there's something called a voterama. 
a votorama basically allows you to go and offer any amendment you want. It can be pertinent to the underlying bill or not, but it's like a, a talking filibuster. You can't just hold up the bill because they don't have 60 votes, similar to how you'd use a regular filibuster. You can stand there and amend it or offer as many amendments as you want. But the second you know people are exhausted of physically standing there and offering amendments, then they can close the process and move forward to a final vote. So if you know Republicans have a lot of energy, maybe that you know gets them a day, maybe, maybe two days. But the only real hurdles left at this point are, you know, A, do they have the votes, the 50 votes to pass the bill? And B, can they clear the floor of all that other stuff that has to get done early on? But as you can tell, that's far fewer impediments than the last time we spoke about this. Still a lot of work to be done. So if you had to peg it, would you put it like right before New Year's? Like when would they get this across the finish line? If it was strictly process, I would say they'd get it done in that middle week of December, like around December 15th. But I really don't know where the vote count is. So if there's an issue with the vote count, then it'll be whenever Joe Manchin decides it'll be. And that's something I'm not willing to predict. But as far as process goes, it could get done by mid-December. My intel is that they're sick of talking and they're ready to start voting. (laughs) So you put this thing on the floor in the Senate. It's already passed the House with, as you said, Shane, every single Democrat except for one. The president of the United States is 110% behind this. 49 Democratic senators pretty much have said they're behind it. So that's a lot for one person to, to not go along with. Yeah. Just for a point of reference, I understand during the stimulus program, there was $90 billion for clean energy at that time, right, Brandon, during the Recovery yeah, Act? Yeah, across, across the entire federal government, yes. Entire federal government. So now we're talking about the millions that, hundreds of millions that Shane laid out in the infrastructure bill, and now this around $550 billion in the Build Back Better Act for climate and clean energy. It's just crazy. It's an order of magnitude larger Any just gut reactions on that, Brandon, of where you stood at that time to where we are today? Yeah, it's what we need, right? Because we've dug ourselves into such a hole on this. We can't do moderate policies to reach the goals that the scientists have laid out for us. And there also provides a lot of certainty. You know, a lot of this bill in order to go through the reconciliation process is tax credits. Well, you know, the people who pay attention know that this stuff lurches from year to year. Are we going to have the PTC or the ITC or not? You know, and it goes down to every single year in this tax extenders process. It's really hard for executives at their companies to plan around that. Uh, But now if this thing passes, there's going to be like 10 year certainty on how this stuff will work. And I think that's really going to turbocharge. And if direct pay stays in there, that will really matter because the tax credits, as people know, you know, you got to get tax equity investors and it just creates a lot of friction in the process. If it can be treated as direct pay and at the point of sale for some of these technologies, it just makes the process go a lot faster. Yeah. So for those in the renewable energy sector and a lot of other technologies, frankly, the tax credit goes up to 30% for potentially up to 10 years. We'll see if this changes in the Senate version. There are some requirements for prevailing wage and even some adders, some extra bonuses if you have domestic content for like the big wind and solar projects. And then on the distributed side, there isn't direct pay, but refundability, which is similar where homeowners can go solar without having to have the tax liability. They get that refund no matter what, which totally makes sense and should have always been the case so that anyone could go solar. But those are some of the big takeaways there, along with like a myriad of other things. So I think we'll have to give the Build Back Better Act, you know, proper treatment once we know exactly where the pieces fall into place. But to your point, yeah, massive changes that will unlock new levels of growth and certainty for the next decade. This would be the defining piece of climate legislation in our history. Full stop. 
I did see from Princeton's Repeat Project, which I encourage everyone to go check out. It's super handy. They have this amazing tracker of everything in the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Act. And they're updating it over time as this Build Back Better Act moves through Congress. But when I saw one Jesse of their charts, Jesse Jenkins, shout out to him. The one I beat in our competition uh, for best policies. Right. Decarb Madness. Decarb Madness. Everyone go back and check that episode out. <laughs> yeah, but the repeat but project. Brandon's not keeping score. Brandon's, He's not yeah, keeping score. Yeah, no, totally cool with that. Brandon doesn't need to compete. He knows he's already on the other level. (laughs) (laughs) But what I was trying to say is the repeat project has done some modeling. And I think with Build Back Better coupled with the infrastructure bill, assuming it passes, we can get to that goal, President Biden's goal of reducing greenhouse gas emissions 50% below 2005 levels, not by 2030, which is the real goal, but shortly thereafter by 2035, 2036. So it's not what we need, but it's getting us on the right trajectory. So... Bring it back for our listeners for their holiday conversations. I think the important piece, especially over Thanksgiving, you know, coming up is there's been so much talk about the process here and it's been painful. I would advise talk about all the great things that are in it. That's what you want to be telling your family members. It's going to be easier to get an electric vehicle. It's going to be easier to get solar and wind, a heat pump. These are better technologies, better machines. They're cleaner, they're healthier. And there's going to be so many jobs associated with this, installing the heat pumps in the home, putting batteries in the home, putting solar on your roof. It's going to be an an incredible benefit for so many millions of people in this country. So I would be talking about the benefits. Making things in America again. Yes. And all the supply chain and domestic sourcing is really transformational. So I would be talking less about the horse trading and the process and more about how this will impact the lives of your family members in a positive way. Love it. Well, now let's run through some faster stats. Those were the big ticket items we had to address, you know, the the two elephants in the room, if you will. But here's a couple quick things for you to note, and we'll go around the horn on this. First up, in case anyone asks, Americans support the expansion of wind and solar energy, not just by a slim majority, but by a remarkable amount, an out-of-this-world amount. According to Pew Research, 90% of respondents in a poll said they favor expanding solar energy, and 83% said they favor expanding wind power. Our producer, Maria Virginia Alano, who is fantastic, wrote for Canary Media, Quote, these are Dolly Parton level approval numbers that cut across parties and cohorts, yet most politicians in the mainstream press choose to consistently overlook the public's overwhelming love for renewable power resources. Well put, Maria Virginia. Is Dolly Parton super popular? Yeah. I didn't know that. Don't you love Dolly Parton? Is she the most popular? Like, who's the most popular? Is it like Tom Hanks? Maybe The Rock. I think Uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson could run for president and possibly win. (laughs) He does have incredible positives. I wonder wonder if he is the most, like the singular most. (laughs) Tina Turner? I just watched that documentary. It was fantastic. All right. It's a question for our listeners. Tell us who the most popular person is. um, And that's what renewable energy is. (laughs) All right. Well, that's the next stack you got to know. 90% support for solar in America, 83% support for wind. It's very popular across the board. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, 
and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Shane, can you take us through our next stat there? Number four. More than 3 million Americans across all 435 congressional districts are directly employed in the clean energy sector, according to E2, which is a business and environmental nonprofit. That number is down from 3.36 million from the year before. I think a lot of that is probably due to disruptions from the pandemic. For example, rooftop solar installers more than likely not working you know, toward the beginning of the pandemic. And one in every 50 American workers are in clean energy, which means more Americans work in clean energy today than there are lawyers, police officers, farmers, firefighters, kindergarten teachers, and mail carriers combined. We need kindergarten teachers. So that's an incredible stat, right? Because there's probably a lot of kindergarten teachers and a lot of mail carriers. So what sector do you think most of the jobs are in across renewables, the grid, low carbon fuels, EVs, et cetera? I'm going to guess it's rooftop solar installers, but I'd love for our listeners to prove me wrong. Yeah, I found this interesting and I wanted to know what you guys thought. What do you think among all the clean energy sectors you can think of is the most populous you know, job? Are you asking us to guess? Yeah, you got to guess. Wind turbine technician. That is one of the fastest growing, but interestingly, efficiency has like 2 million jobs in America, which you would never think of from retrofits to heating systems all across the board. Always the underdog, I think. No one has been able to crack the code on making efficiency sexy, but that is in fact one of the biggest employers in clean energy today. I feel so humbled after I beat Jesse Jenkins. You know, now I've like come down a notch because I totally... No, I'm going to be honest. That's kind of bullshit. Right. That's an energy technology that just reduces the amount of energy consumption. So I, I that's kinda... the best technology there is. The one you the energy you don't use is the most efficient way. No, of... We're going to live in a world of abundance. Yes. We are. I didn't mean efficiency was a bad thing. I didn't mean that at all. I just meant when I was posturing my guess, I really was trying to think about like <laughs> implementing a new technology. I'm really glad that you guys took the question seriously. It adds dynamism to the show, but like you take it really seriously. Like this question's crap. It's just like Shane, he's Republican. He's going to contest, you know, the validity. He's going to say it was rigged, right? That's what they do. I'm contesting the validity of that question right now. But by the way, it was energy efficiency. Absolutely love energy efficiency. So I hope that didn't come off as a negative. No. And once again, since we're giving Jesse Jenkins the shout out, please go back and listen to our Decarb Madness episodes from uh, last year. They were a riot. All right, Brandon, guide us through stat number five. The corporate procurement movement in the United States is responsible for about 20% of total renewable energy built at this point. Corporations like Google are dragging utilities and state governments along with them. 20% of total renewable energy is from corporations. That's a pretty big deal. 
Yeah, and it should be higher, honestly, because that's what I was talking about with market reform earlier. There are several parts of the country where corporations who are willing to put their own dollars to work to build out renewable resources or procure additional resources aren't permitted to by law. And so those technical assistance grants that we talked about in the Infrastructure Act are actually really important because there are states who want to become part of an RTO or an ISO or a wholesale market where those large corporations like Google could do that. Um, and these grants will help those state energy offices you know, work with uh, other states around them and be able to do that. Yeah. So I think for our listeners, when you have the crazy uncle that says, oh, this is just about polar bears and hippies in San Francisco, you can say, actually, it's businesses that are leading on procuring this clean power. And you, most utilities have a net zero emissions goal at this point. Yeah. And the corporations have helped guide the rate structures in order to help make it easier to buy renewables. That's the cool systems change element of all that. Totally. All right. Great. According to the International Energy Agency, if all the climate pledges announced to date up and through COP26 were actually implemented on time, it would be enough to hold the rising global temperatures to 1.8 degrees Celsius by 2100. Now, that's significant because the Paris Agreement goal is to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. So 1.8 is a pretty significant analysis and shows that we are on the right track, even though the asterisk there is the pledges have to be implemented, which is a big question mark as to whether or not we can follow through. Now, other groups have been less optimistic than the IEA, saying that there's more likely to have warming closer to 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So Look, there's still some modeling being done and new targets coming out and questions of whether targets will even be met. But I think some of these recent analyses show that we are on the right track and that these forums work as a pressure mechanism to get new pledges on the books that have meaning. And so that is something to celebrate. And we should just now keep the pressure on so we can not only make the pledges more aggressive, but also make sure that they actually come to fruition. I still think they should talk about it in Fahrenheit. Right? Because it's very confusing. Well, I think the U.S. is like one of the only places that uses Fahrenheit. The rest of the world is on the other system, exactly. the metric so system. Fahrenheit, <laughs> They're not Thanksgiving dinners, Julia. We're also the country that uses the U.S. dollar. But guess what? The global financial system runs on the U.S. dollar. It's not rocket science. Uh, all right. We can say I, I can't do the conversion in my head. What is 1.8 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit? A 20 degree increase? It's like divided by five over nine plus 32. And I'm in no condition to do that. <laughs> Everyone calculate on the side. Hey, Siri, what is <laughs> Celsius to Fahrenheit? 1.8 degrees Celsius is 35.24 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone at the, the Thanksgiving table is going to get that detailed. Suffice to say, pledges put us on track to meeting our climate goals, even if we're well off. But the point is, don't give in to the naysayers. The process works and we get better every time we work on it. So here's the next one. Just prior to the Glasgow COP summit at the UN General Assembly in September, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced plans to abandon building new coal plants abroad. China's obviously played a particularly big role in financing overseas coal plants. The country provided half of overseas public finance to coal-fired power plants between 2013 and 2018. So the number for number seven is zero. Zero new Chinese-financed coal plants abroad moving forward. Big if true, you know, like if, if they follow through on that, we don't have the details. That's a pretty big deal coming from China. Mind you, we don't have a timeline for them no longer building coal plants within their own country as they also currently experience um, an energy crisis there. But hey, again, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's for your crazy uncle who says, 
oh, well, you know, why should the United States do this and not China, right? Right. It's like everyone's involved. India also came up with a net zero goal by 2070, which is not the timeline we need. It's it's too far in the future. However, as part of that, they're going to deploy something like 500 gigawatts of renewables. So they're in on this. It's just a matter of the speed and scale at which we at which we move. And I will note that some people may have seen that another 20 countries committed at COP to no longer finance fossil fuels abroad. So that's coal plus other things like oil and gas. China did not sign on to that. But notable that they have made this pledge to finance zero new coal plants abroad. So next up is for your cousin that says, oh, EVs are just a California thing. That's because global passenger plug-in electric car sales doubled year over year in September to over 685,000. That's up 98%, which is the new all-time monthly record, 16% better than the previous monthly record from June. So EVs are everywhere now. In the U.S., news of higher EV sales came alongside a commitment from General Motors, Ford, and other automakers for all new car sales to be zero emission by 2040. So all of the traditional OEMs are on board with this as well. Yeah. Pretty cool that EV sales are, are, are doubled year over year in September. I actually thought that the pandemic would have set this back even further, people not traveling, supply chain issues. But the fact that EV sales continue to increase... Proves that this is starting to leave early adopter mode and maybe become the mainstream thing we're all waiting for it to be. So Shane and I flew back from D.C. on the same flight, uh, sat next to each other. The people around us must have been super annoyed. And then I drove in Shane's Ford Mustang EV. He gave me a ride home. It was amazing. I, I could tell that you were not ready for that awesomeness. Like you thought it was going to be some like crappy sort of wannabe Tesla. That car is amazing. And by the way, Brandon, you just ruined the way I was going to close this show because instead of saying the real number 10, I was going to say 5.5. The number of hours Brandon had the privilege of spending with me on an airplane from DC to LA. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you guys do? Did you like do a crossword? Did you, you know, chit chat? I took the middle seat, you know, because I'm a good guy. He, he did. And there was like a couple times where I was trying to type and I had no elbow room, but I'm like, I can't say anything. He took the middle seat. There's no, no the middle gets the armrest. That's the rule. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a trade off there. <laughs> That's so nice. A little bonding time. Moving right along. This is number nine. This hits close to home. And I thought it was an interesting stat, although it takes a second to explain. In October, some people may remember that around 25,000 gallons of oil was spilled onto the beaches of Southern California after this underwater pipeline was ruptured, possibly by a cargo ship that dragged its anchor. What's interesting, though, is according to the California Solar and Storage Association, there are currently over 1 million rooftop solar systems in California today, covering roughly 1 in 10 buildings. And here's the stat. Combined, these systems offset twice as much energy contained in that oil spill, those 25,000 gallons, in just one hour. So, you know, these are not apples to apples. They use oil in different scenarios than solar. But I just thought that that's a really powerful stat. In one hour, the solar system's rooftop solar in California generates as much energy as it was in that oil spill that destroyed a bunch of beaches. You know, I haven't been following it closely, but for those who may be in California, there's a big decision actually coming up on solar, uh, net metering. And so that'll be one to watch on what really happens to the future of solar in this state. All right. I'm going to take on number 10 here. And I'm going to be honest, our listeners are not going to like this. And that's particularly true if they live in Texas. So the number is $3.4 billion. 
And that is the amount of money that Texans will be paying to basically, you know, in, as a response to the effects of last February's cold snap, as the state's oil and gas regulator approved a plan for natural gas utilities to recover, again, $3.4 billion of debt they incurred during the storm. The regulator, the Texas Railroad Commission, is allowing utilities to issue bonds to cover the debt. And as a result, ratepayers could see an increase in their bills for the next 30 years. I'll be using that one at Thanksgiving in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's this myth that the, you know, Texas power outages, which were terrible, by the way, something like 210 people died. It was horrific. After that, we saw all these headlines that the outages were caused primarily by wind and solar. But in reality, every resource played a role in those outages, unfortunately. And when you actually look at the data from ERCOT, the grid operator, natural gas was actually the primary cause of the outages. Now, that had to do with natural gas supplying more of the electricity. But nonetheless, ERCOT found that frozen wind turbines were the least significant factor in the Texas blackouts. So that myth needs to be busted. And the point here isn't just about renewables against fossil fuels. Texas is not going to transition tomorrow. So not only is there a point about accurately assessing resources and not placing blame unnecessarily, uh, especially on cleaner ones that we do know we need more of, it is a question also of climate adaptation and making sure that our systems are resilient to the kinds of climate changes we are going to see, which is not always a heat wave. It also comes in the form of extreme weather in the wintertime, which can have truly disastrous effects. It's a good point you make, Julia, because I am not clean energy or climate change evangelists never have been. The reason I've gotten so you know firmly behind clean energy is because it's better. It doesn't emit, it doesn't pollute, it performs well, the technology has gotten to a point where it's more cost-effective. And I think it's important for people to think about that. I mean, you can say, all I care about in the world is climate change, and for that reason, anything that emits is awful. But as a, as a conservative, my view was always oil and gas is better because it's cost-effective, it's available, and it works. That was true. Renewable technology. Well, cost effective if you didn't price in the negative externalities. Sure. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's a calculation for negative externalities. But my point being that the technology has advanced so much since this debate started in Congress and not started, but even in 2009 when cap and trade was being debated, the cost of renewable energy, the, the technology efficiency and the ability to store and use that energy with, you know, whether it's long duration energy storage or other technologies is just tremendous. And so, it's not about are you good or are you bad? Do you like clean or do you like dirty? It's just about what works, what's economically efficient. And I think the narrative in Texas was a little bit confusing after that cold snap because what people wanted to say was too many wind turbines, but that isn't actually what happened. And you know, our last statistic, I think, plays that out pretty well. Well, yeah, it might have happened because Fox News <laughs> was saying it was the wind turbines. <laughs> That's probably what happened. Right. So steer clear from Fox News this holiday season. Uh, maybe stick to football. That's a good way to survive the holidays. <laughs> Is Cincinnati in or out of the college playoff? I don't know. That could start some some heated conversation. Hey, don't look now, but Bucky's coming. You know, early, early embarrassment. We got like seven in a row now. We're going to jump up to number like, you know, 13 or 12 tomorrow. Incredible. Well, I hope you guys both have an awesome Thanksgiving. Where are you going for Thanksgiving, Julia? St. Louis, Missouri. Oh. The home of clean tech innovation. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I was just, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. <laughs> <laughs> no. But it could be. I actually love St. Louis and really enjoy my time in, in Missouri. So yeah, I'm headed there. As a Canadian, I never have any competition for this weekend. I just get to go and enjoy all the wonders that is American Thanksgiving. Well, if I'm truly your beloved co-host, you can show me how much you love me by bringing back some St. Louis barbecue sauce. Oh, that would make my day. you got it. 
that's all I have to do. Great. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, have a great Thanksgiving. And thanks to everyone listening. We really appreciate you tuning in and hope this was helpful. We'll include a bunch of links in the show notes so that you can get these stats at your fingertips should you need them. And before we sign off, a big thank you to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano, and to our editor, Kyle McDonald. Thanks also to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for supporting this show and to our friends at Canary Media. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. We're available pretty much everywhere. Hit that subscribe button so you can follow along. It means a lot. And if you have a chance this holiday weekend, please leave us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. And we also get to hear what's on your mind. So if you have a moment, we'd love it if you would do that. Giving thanks to all of you for now. So long. <laughs>